welcome to Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and this episode is a little different than my other episodes because I have invited on somebody not to interview them, but for them to interview me. And you might ask, who is this mysterious person? It is my husband, Scott Hammond, the one, the only. And Scott Hammond is a structural engineer, an excellent one, I might add. He's the one who's good at math in our family. Yes, we are definitely split into the categories of who's good at math and who's good at English. And he is an all-around excellent human being and the father of my three children. We've been married for 12 years, and he agreed to read old uh, to read Jesus through medieval eyes and interview me in honor of this occasion of the book coming out on October 31st. So everybody, please pre-order. It's available anywhere you buy your books. And it was honestly so fun and such a delight to chat with him. So I hope you enjoy this special episode on Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and this is with me, my husband, Scott. Mr. Dr. Grace Hammond. (laughs) I'm so excited you're here. (laughs) So, as you know full well, I ask two get-to-know-you questions for the listeners of Old Books with Grace. And the first one is, which book or author from more than 50 years ago is your favorite? Well, since I have to do more than 50 years ago, and I can't get husband points and say you. <laughs> Ooh, very good. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with the next best thing, C.S. Lewis. Nice. Mm-hmm. Although I'm not well read, so. <laughs> you saying. can't go wrong with C.S. Lewis, okay, though. That's, that's like saying. a winner answer. That's what I thought. Yeah. You know, so. Which, what C.S. Lewis really tickles your fancy? Oh, I don't know. Let's just, let's go with, hmm. I mean, the screw tape letters were really formative for me when I was in high school. Hmm. Good choice. That's a good one. Okay, so second get to know you question. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? Uh, In the Green Knight, the Gawain in the Green Knight. Mm -hmm. I am going to say not the Green Knight. (laughs) That's good. I'm glad you don't identify with the Green Knight. Yes, I... I might in some ways, but uh, I actually do identify with Gowan a lot and in for the reasons that aren't necessarily that flattering, but I think uh, he's an interesting character who fails and he tries and he fails and he has to, he has to work with that. That's a good answer. Mm-hmm. And Gowan is one of my f- absolute favorite middle English characters. So it's an excellent answer. I'm highly influenced by you. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Let it be known. Let it be known that we both like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So, today, you are interviewing me, not me interviewing you, which is a very interesting change of events. As Michael Scott would say, how the (laughs) turntables. That's great. 
Um, yeah, and I'm not an expert in literature, nor interviewing, nor podcasting. So we'll see how it goes. I think it's going to be good, though. I prepared. All right, let's go. All right, so I read your book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, and that's what we want to talk about today. Um, so my first question for you, you write about in your book, the incessant compulsive of thirst writing about Jesus in the medieval period. How does that level of devotion to something align us on a path and form us? Is that the narrow path? Hmm. Yes. Yes. I think it, Augustine is one of the best writers of this, where he talks about how what we love forms us so deeply. And this was what shocked me about medieval poetry when I first started reading it at this gigantic undergraduate institution that was fully secular English department. No one wanted to talk about Jesus. It was awkward. And yet you couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere in medieval literature. And I fell in love with that. And I think that this kind of love can't help but form your writing and it can't help but form your life. And so like any of our habits, I think you brought this up before, like for listeners, Scott is a very avid rock climber and his love of rock climbing and of the rocks and the outdoors has like deeply shaped his desires and the shape of his life. And these medieval writers, because they love Jesus so much and it's just shining in their, in their poetry or in their art, you can't help but be influenced by that as you read them. And it has been extremely formative for me in that way. And I'm really thankful for that. Hmm. Uh, in your uh, chapter one, you talk about openness in the medieval ideal and theme of openness. How did your medieval studies and how do they still cultivate openness for you? And how does that openness lead to loving people? And how does honest openness lead to humility and wisdom? A multi-part question. Mm. This is a good, another good question. Um, okay. So <laughs> I've tried to explain this to people before because it doesn't make sense necessarily, or it's not immediately apparent on the surface that reading the literature of the past, which in some ways is more bigoted than some of our present day literature or more prejudiced in certain ways, um, how does that help one cultivate openness? Um, and this is a strange question, but it's, it's actually been very true for me because what I had to do while reading so many of these authors, like take a complicated example, like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who both writes these absolutely stunning sermons on the love of God. I mean, he's one of the most profound theologians on the love of God that I've ever read and has really shaped so much of my thought and inquiry into medieval literature. And at the same time, he was a huge proponent of the Crusades and had a very complicated legacy 
um, in terms of the kinds of things he was encouraging in the politics of his time. So we're faced with a choice when we read people of the past because everyone is going to disagree with us. (laughs) No one is going to agree with me on all counts. And so when we read people of the past, we have to cultivate this openness, not necessarily in adoption of exactly what they believed, because I don't agree with Bernard of Clairvaux that the Crusades were a good idea. Mm. But if I threw him out in the trash bin entirely, I would not have learned as much as I have from him about the nature of love and humility and um, communal living, which he writes profoundly about. And so you have to hold this openness where you are aware that you yourself, I myself as the reader am coming out of my own cultural perspective. Um, And some things I think I'm closer to truth on than old Bernard, but Bernard, despite all of his failings is closer on some things than I am. So this is the complexity of reading the works of the past and why you have to hold that openness in yourself, the willingness to say, well, I thought this one thing and it turned out that I was wrong or, huh, I've never thought of it that way before. How can this mold me and shape me uh, in the love of God and in pursuit of truth? And this has been the gift of reading literature of the past is that you don't swallow it wholesale. (laughs) You have to use your God-given mind and sort through it. Um, And and so that's, I think, the value of openness. And that's also why it leads to humility is because it necessarily entails this soul searching of where have I made assumptions? Where have I thought I knew the way the world worked? And then it didn't. (laughs) Yeah, and in reading that in your chapter, I thought about how we treat people too, and as humans, being open. Yes, uh, it, it rang so true that um, we are more humble. We we are open to people's um, love when we are open to loving other people, and and don't have such a rigid view and assumption of all other people are all all culture. That's right, and I think I think it's. It's one of those examples where Christ's own Christ's own life gives us such a shining, beautiful example of this. Like, can you imagine a person who was so open to being with and loving other people that tax collectors and prostitutes were approaching him and Pharisees were approaching him too? I mean, you you see all walks of life wanting to talk to him, wanting to know more about what he's up to and the things he's saying and how he's living. And so it's funny to, to, to put those things together, but I think that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. In chapter two of your book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, the chapter is titled Jesus as Judge. How should we understand the fear of God, God's justice and holy fear? Hmm. So this is definitely one of those complicated questions that I really hope all of you will read the chapter and wrestle with because fear is, holy fear is just not a straightforward thing. But for me, this was a really good exercise because I had always been one of those people well-meaningly associating fear with just another version of awe or reverence, which it is a lot of the time. But we're going to react very differently (laughs) When we're afraid of something versus when we're just um, in awe of something. So in the book, I use this example that was 
like all my examples, they teach me as much as I'm like writing them. Um, so I've thought about this a lot since where I was at the Denver Museum of Science and they have this wonderful dinosaur uh, display there that my kids really love. Our kids, I should say. <laughs> and, um, and they're mine too. <laughs> yes, they are. And um, there's this reaction where you can have this awe when you see these ancient bones and the skeletons are, are really beautiful and, and very awe inspiring and they're huge and you feel really small. But if the dinosaur were alive and you were looking at a living dinosaur, you would not have a response of just awe. There would be fear there too. And you would be insane if you weren't afraid. Mm. It would be, a, it would be weird. And so I started thinking about the gift of fear, which is something medieval people talk about fear as a gift because when we are as humans in our beautiful, limited, fragile bodies, we should be, we should have a healthy fear of the things that are bigger and more powerful than ourselves. So for instance, we fear the ocean. Um, and if you aren't afraid and respectfully afraid of the ocean, you can still play in it. You can still love it. You can still enjoy it, live off of it, all those things. But if you aren't respectfully afraid of the ocean, that's going to end poorly for you in the long run. Um, and so thinking about fear as a healthy response to something bigger and more powerful than you as part of being human, um, that started to change how I felt about fear and the places in scriptures where, um, where you hear about the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom. I'm like, that makes more sense because you are recognizing your limitations in the face of something utterly beautiful and powerful beyond comprehension. So would that be more in line with holy fear? Yes, yes. And and I think like, so in the back of my mind, I was thinking about Julian of Norwich, as I almost always am. (laughs) And thinking about... She comes up with four kinds of fear, and she basically says three out of the four are bad. Like, don't don't be afraid. Three out of the four are, are un- unhealthy. But the last fear that she mentions, she is called reverent dread. And reverent dread is, and dread has a way more negative connotation today than it had in, in Middle English. But this idea of reverent fear is what she says is is um, the only valuable and beautiful kind of fear in our lives. Well, I'm going to stay with fear because I have more important questions on it. Um, in the book, you you write uh, and you say, we should be afraid of violating another person's, or uh, actually you say another immortal's humanity. How does that holy fear shape community? So this was something that um, I hadn't really thought too much about before. C.S. Lewis has, I I think in in that section you're referring to, I'm talking about C.S. Lewis's wonderful commentary on how ordinary human beings, none of them are ordinary. Not a single person you've met is is a boring, normal, normie, whatever. (laughs) That in fact, they are going to last longer than any empire. That everything is fading in comparison to this image of God who is constantly becoming in the process of becoming. And so 
Um, it struck me that we're often very afraid of other people. Um, we're afraid of people who are different than us. We're afraid of people who don't act like us or don't look like us. And we see this in, in very negative ways. We see the horrible fallout of this kind of fear all the time. But we don't have holy fear of other people, mm. of that deep, like, I, I, I don't want to violate your humanity as an image of God because you are a holy, holy vessel of, in the world. I think of, like, beauty with that or art yes. or even <clears throat> fresh snow or something that's really cool that someone has done or nature and nature. And you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. You want to take part in it and you want to see it, but you don't want to do anything that's going to ruin it. And if we could see people that way, um, yeah, I think that would be do a great deal for community rather than the other fear. Yes. Of, I don't, I'm afraid of you. And now I see you as a threat. Yes. And I, and I, who knows what we do in that point. Yes. Right? And it's such an important distinction. And Augustine calls holy fear, uh, the needle stitching with the, the, the thread of charity together, the body of Christ, hmm. which I think is such a beautiful image of the power of, of fearfully and wonderfully made, hmm. how fearfully and wonderfully made people are, to, to quote the psalm. Hmm. Are faith and fear mutually exclusive? Well, it depends on what kind of fear... I, to go back to Julian, reverent dread is a part of faith. Um, reverent dread entails holding Jesus, the judge, in the kind of holy fear that I've been talking about. Um, and that is, is a part of faith. But other kinds of fear, like, for instance, the fear of hell or the fear that we sometimes confuse with holy fear, the fear of... Um, of ourselves, the fear of, uh, other people, like what, what we were just talking about, not a holy fear, that's going to be an impediment to faith. I don't think it mm. is mutually exclusive because we're all so flawed and fearful, generally speaking, mm. but it's going to keep you from recognizing truth and goodness and beauty. Yeah. I asked that because in the book you, you reference, um, Mark chapter four, of the Bible, when um, when the uh, Jesus calmed the storm, mm-hmm. and the uh, his disciples were afraid. Yes, and Jesus says, "Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith?" And I don't think that's ever hit me harder than when I was reading it in your book. Um, and in that regard, he's Jesus telling them that. If you had faith, you would not have fear in this moment in the Mm. way they have fear and the fear they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting. It is interesting. And I wonder what kind of fear it was. Like if, because it it must have been like, I'm thinking of the the time where they think Jesus is a ghost when he's walking on the water and they're (laughs) terrified because they're like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. Um, (laughs) If this, this fear of, what can he do to us? This is horrifying versus this fear of somebody who is ineffable and incomprehensibly more powerful and bigger than you can ever imagine and where you worship in that, in that moment. Right. Mm -hmm. In your chapter, uh, chapter four, Jesus as 
uh, night with a K. Mm-hmm. Yes, not um, nighttime. <laughs> uh, you you talk about um, Gawain, my doppelganger, ganger, and Gawain in the Green Knight, and how he falls into <coughs> a chivalric trap by equating chivalry to his religion. Do you see Christians doing something similar today in any way? Yeah, I do. And it's funny that you bring that up because this part is talking about how Jesus can't be a knight in the same way that Gawain is a knight, right? Um, Gawain sees knighthood as his like total identity. It's all wrapped up with his faith and his Christianity in this uh, complicated, um, convoluted situation that the poet envisions as a knot. Um, K-N-O-T, who again <laughs> emphasizes silent K, which, by the way, in Middle English, all those Ks would have been pronounced. Knicked. Knicked is night. That was and pretty good. That was really good. Okay. And knot for the knot. <laughs> but anyways, I am digressing. Um, I think we all struggle with this because mm. we take pieces of ourselves that are good things. Gawain's knighthood is a good thing. The poet doesn't want us to think it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But we take these pieces of ourselves and we elevate them to the same level of our of who we are in Jesus, um, in the body of Christ. Right. And it's like we identify equally, if not more, with these pieces of ourselves right. than with Christ. So instead of celebrating them as sort of beautiful gifts and parts of what we are, yeah. we worship them. Mm. And this is what happens with Gawain is that he worships himself as in his perfect knighthood so much that he is, loses some of the distinctions between knighthood and um, and telling the truth, <laughs> quite frankly. And I, we do that all the time. Um, I think we see it in, in politics a lot, um, where people equate one side or the other as being the Christian side, and and Gawain the. The, po- the Gawain poet is v- is a very wise poet and allows us to see through some of those knots. <laughs> wow. Good medieval joking. <laughs> uh, well, I really loved uh, your Thomas Aquinas, uh, your chapter five, which ha- um, I think starred. Would you say starred Thomas Aquinas? Mm-hmm. Good and word, yeah. He's a superstar. He's kind of the superstar. Of of that uh, chapter, and and um, I'm not going to ask this question, but I did want to say how I, I loved how you wrote um, this phrase: Aquinas's commitment to communal pursuit of truth. Um, and I think I, it just inspires me mm. in it to like work together with people mm-hmm. to try to be more human and to understand things. Um, uh, obviously, there's you have conversations that go bad and usually you look back and you go, huh, that was because we were on opposite sides trying to win. Yes. And I think that's amazing that uh, that phrase of communal pursuit of truth, where you're working together, pushing towards w- one direction. Um, I love it. But do you think Aquinas was fun to talk to? <laughs> Especially about theology. I imagine he was. Did he approach everyday life like he did the Summa Theology? How do you say it? The Summa <laughs> Theologiae. Theologiae. Well, I wasn't going to get that one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I've said it wrong many a time. It has too many syllables. Um, So 
was Aquinas fun to hang out with? Mm. Mm. Mm, I like this. I like this question. Well, his talk about his form of his Summa. Okay. So the form of the Summa, and you're going to have to read the book for more and, um, because it's too complicated. It is to too complicated. Right, but, to right. but it's a question and answer form, which is really interesting right. because he is begging you to continue asking the question. Yeah. Um, and that's the, the glory of the Summa is that it is an ongoing conversation. Even though when you first approach it, it doesn't feel that way because it's couched in this intense scholastic vocabulary that is Latin and so hard. Mm. But because of its form, it is fundamentally invitational at its core. Yeah. So he asks questions and answers them, like mm-hmm. you said, but he also, he gives a, his best answer. Mm-hmm. No, well, first he gives his, his well, opponent's best answer. Well, I was, was going to say, but not only does he give his answer, before that he gives all the other possible answers. <laughs> yes. Which is so cool. So cool. Can you and, imagine a politician doing that? <laughs> Can you imagine a politician going, this might be a good way, <laughs> but I, I might have a slightly better way. <laughs> Like that's I, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to happen um, in next year's election, um, but in, not only and then he does that and and he gives all the ways where his response might be wrong that we can look and learn with him and understand how something was come about rather than this is the way it is if you oppose this in any way you're the enemy. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well, and what's great is that he's he's not like slam dunking his his opponents and often his opponents are people like. Augustine right. or Amazing. like origin or, um, you know, all, all of these like super famous, well-known theologians. So he's not like choosing these like fringy people to I dunk on. I just need Thomas Aquinas like over my shoulder <laughs> telling me, like coaching me all the time. I think I would be a better person. We probably all would be a better people. <laughs> <laughs> so my answer though is, I think he was very serious, but I also think that he loved people because, okay, so he was known like in his studies, apparently people called him the dumb ox because he would be like <laughs> silent in class <laughs> and, and people were like that guy, like he's not going to do anything. Like yeah. he's not going anywhere, but inwardly the cogs were whirring <laughs> and, and Aquinas was thinking and, and we know that, um, he, you know, he was, he was a monk, he was a Dominican friar. And so he had brothers in his order and he was co- constantly, um, with people and teaching. He was a teacher at heart. That's what the Summa was written for, was for uh, novices <laughs> and beginners, which is really funny, kind of funny joke, but true. And I think that he would have been, in my opinion, my reading of Thomas, <laughs> I think he would have been really interesting to hang out with. Very Like a serious guy, but full full of interesting ideas and thoughts and ready to ask questions with you, which I mean, aren't those the best kinds of friends? Yeah. I think he would have been fascinating as well. Um, maybe someday, huh? I would like to meet him. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So in your chapter, you asked me earlier what my favorite chapter was. Yeah. What and is your favorite I'm super chapter? Bad I would at, like to know. I, I, I don't do favorites very well. Um, but I'm going to choose one, and it's uh, your chapter 7, Jesus as the Good Medieval Christian, 
which I wouldn't have thought that would have been my answer by it's looking. It's not one of the showstoppers. Let's at be my honest. table of contents, but I just I loved it, and I had so many uh, good questions and thoughts while reading it. Um, and it, yeah, it was great. So in that chapter, um, you and Saint Bernard of Clairvaux describe humility as, uh, well, in my in my editorial terms, <laughs> as wisdom and strength compared to lowness and weakness. How how did you do that? Would you say? Yeah. Um, well, this is one of my pet projects. Always. Um, humility and thinking about what it means and what it does to us and the importance of it in a life of faithfulness. And so Bernard of Clairvaux has one of the most famous definitions of humility in the middle ages. And the gist of it is that humility is true self-knowledge, especially taking into account our frailties and our weaknesses. So in one sense that reads as lowness or weakness or, something to that effect. And it is, but in the paradox that characterizes so much of Christian life of following Jesus, that weakness is turned into an incredible source of strength. As you learn, humility is the cornerstone of learning, um, both information, head knowledge and heart knowledge and all the virtues. And so, um, this idea of self-knowledge as sort of the roots of wisdom where you begin to say, I don't understand that. I need help with that. Lord, help me. Um, as opening all the other doors to all these other beautiful gifts of God. And and that's what I really love about Bernard's idea of humility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that knowledge is power really applies to this. It does. In a, way that, in a funny way. In a way that we don't, use it now no humility the term humility um in that it's knowing ourselves and others and our place amongst the cosmos Mm -hmm. and even a power of knowing our weaknesses yes and knowing our position yes and compared to god and compared to others right yes not above others yes right and that power of knowing how to be and understanding life mm. is is more a power than just winning and and being alpha yes. or being better than no showing it, it, how you're better so than people. It's so contradictory to so many narratives that the world tells about success. Yeah, and when you read Bernard, it really it's kind of shocking because he he actually this is from his book The Steps of Humility and Pride, and he himself admits he's like well. Benedict already did the steps of humility. So this is really more the steps of pride. And he goes through all these different like ways in which you're prideful. And it is very literally a humiliating read, even though it's also really funny because you're like, Oh yeah, check, check. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do that too. And, but, but it's that it's knowing that about yourself and recognizing the absurdity of it and even sort of joyfully recognizing the absurdity and being like, well, (laughs) that's exactly how I do it. I have no, problem with self-confidence and pride. Um, but you know, I, I think it's funny how I can see that in myself and it actually helps me in knowing and in humility, knowing that that's ridiculous to think that I, why would I be so blindly (laughs) happy with myself 
Yeah. Bernard calls it living in happy cloud land, happy, by the way. Does he really? <laughs> he he uses that term? He does. I didn't use it in this book, but, you know, stay tuned. It might appear elsewhere at some point. <laughs> Sounds like a middle good. school phrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was teaching young monks about the ways of living together. It's like, don't live in happy cloud land about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of your favorite people and favorite... Um, uh, themes in this book is from Julian of Norwich, or I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Oh, shame. I meant to say Norwich. (laughs) For everyone out there, that was an example of how not to say Americans, it's Norwich. (laughs) Norwich. I... I think I misspoke on accident. My lips are tired. <laughs> you, you like jinxed yourself. I jinxed myself. Julian of Norwich. <laughs> no W, no W sound. Um, I think that would be kind of the, uh, a lot of your, uh, motivation and in, in writing and medieval yes. literature comes from, from her. She um, is the fountainhead, let's say. Right. And, um, in your chapter, Jesus says mother, um, Julian requests, to suffer a bodily sickness that would nearly bring her to death, to aid her in purging herself to a, of attachment to things that are not Christ. Death and sickness put life in perspective, don't they? They bring everyone to terms. Um, some feel that focusing on Jesus' suffering is manipulative, though. It's a manipulative Christian tactic. Uh, what do you have? Uh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. What do you and medieval people say to that? No, and I think this is one of the cruxes, actually, of our difference from medieval people, um, is that we so often, and this, and I think you said this is from Jesus's mother, but it's actually from Jesus on the cross. Hmm. Um, we, when we look at the cross, um, often our, our first impulse isn't to like look at the wounds and really, really dive in, focus on the wounds. Julian wants to suffer bodily. And we're like, what the heck? Why would, why would anybody pray for that? Um, and so this is a real sticking point of difference between the way that medieval people thought and the way that we usually think today. And so it's hard for us to not think of it as like manipulative or like, oh, they're just trying to guilt induce or, or something like that. But I think what uh, something that um, medieval artists in particular have helped me with, looking at medieval art of the crucifixion, has really shown to me um, the power in gazing on the wounds of Jesus. And so what medieval people were wanting and longing for and praying for when they looked at Christ's wounds and even prayed to share Christ's suffering with him was that they wanted their hearts opened to compassion and to contrition for their sins. And that's different than being merely guilt-inducing, because I think sometimes we read it as like, oh, they made me feel guilty or it made me feel whatever. And when when you're looking for contrition, it's when you genuinely want to feel the weight of what you've done to someone else or of how you've failed to act and those are things that, um, as Christians, we're called to do on a regular basis. We're called to repent of our sins. And they saw gazing at the wounds of Jesus as a really powerful way to begin to stimulate those thoughts and those feelings that sometimes we're afraid of invoking. And then secondly is the compassion aspect in gazing at the bleeding Christ on the cross 
and really feeling that in your heart, they were learning how to be compassionate towards other people who were Mm -hmm. suffering, not even just Jesus, but that it extended back out into community. That um, that was a powerful way to begin to see other people in their pain. Right. You you wrote, suffering is profoundly isolating because no one can fully understand your hurt. Um, I thought that was amazing to read. And um, I see how that can be turned toward other people and community. And once you realize the suffering that we all know ourselves and our own bodies and life, um, and, and then to see Jesus choosing to suffer for us mm-hmm. and what is... What does Julian say? He he would suffer more for us if he could. Jesus tells Julian, if I could suffer more, I, I would, would suffer more. And yeah. to Julian, that is the most meaningful, like powerful, heart-piercing thing because she is able to recognize how he has taken her suffering, both caused by her sin or bodily ailments or whatever it is, into himself as part of this redemption. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's um, a a hinge point for for her as she's writing. She refers to it multiple times in her book of showings. Right. And, and Jesus is in that reaching out to the thing that is most isolating to all people that no one else can really help you with. Yes. Um, And yeah, I did think though, is this why misery loves company? Because they have no one to share it with. <laughs> no, <laughs> They're searching for you're, company. Because um, Jesus is liberating from suffering. He's not trying to pull you into it, like, suffer more. <laughs> <laughs> suffer with me. Feel bad. Um, all of it has um, this this learning of compassion and learning of contrition has this outward effect where it's never going to be purely self-referential. Um which is crazy because because pain is so isolating. So, yeah, and then Isaiah, you reference Isaiah, um, fifth, chapter fifty three. By his wounds we are saved. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so um, we've talked so much about um, the all your all your work and all your medieval uh, friends, as you would call them, and uh, I've. You know, we've had conversations about some of these themes over the years and all that, and I've loved it. But I think never have I um, enjoyed the collection of medieval uh, writers and ideas than when I read it all at once in your book. <laughs> Thanks. It was it was really fun. Um, uh, so, what do you think were some of the factors in medieval uh, the medieval European period that produced some of the practices in literature and theology? Yeah, I think that all of these images of Christ and these ways of looking at Jesus that are creative and different, and um, you know, some of them are more scriptural than others, some of them are more sort of fanciful than others, um, what they all share in common is this um, deep formation by medieval people's recognition of the sacramentality of the world, that God is in everything, that God has given us so many gifts and that all these gifts are ways into understanding him. And, and that, um, the world is charged with holiness if we're looking for it. 
And so um, you, you think of uh, the way that they thought about metaphor and allegory, where in modernity, we're really uncomfortable with figurative language. Uh, we're very worried it's going to get misconstrued or read literally because we always want to read literally. We always want to jump to the literal. <laughs> and medieval people were just so much comfortable with these weird things. <laughs> like, <laughs> let it be weird and let it speak to one aspect. It doesn't have to explain everything. Um, they were so much more comfortable with sitting in paradox and sitting in confusion even and being like, well, that's weird. Isn't it cool? Um, and they wouldn't have said it that way. But that's what I really have loved about them is that they're more comfortable with that than us. I like thinking about that with some of the art yes. or even the writing because yes. writing took even longer then and was harder to actually put words on paper based on technology and writing <laughs> and everything, but just how much time they would take yes. on some of these wild, what I would call wild ideas or interesting, um, uh, imaginations. Yes. Right. And, how much time they were spending on one little wild idea yes. in, in their art and, and to produce this thing that is like, wow, what do we no, do with that now? I, and they were really sitting with it for however long it took them no, to No, I actually love work. that you bring that up. It's such a good point because y you go, they did not have shortcuts. Like we have a lot of shortcuts and shortcuts are great, but they also make us miss some of the like wrestling with and piecing together. So you think of medieval cathedrals, for instance, where you're like, these buildings were taking them hundreds of years to build. And yet they weren't going to see, they weren't going to see its completion in their lifetime while they were building on it. But they were, they had this imagination for what the space was and the gift of it in that process. Or like you're saying with writing or with art, you think of the process of making a book or making an illuminated manuscript it's literal animal skin that you have to like scrape of the fur and dry out and you have to make all your inks and you have to like learn how to write, which was not taken for granted back then. That was not a common skill. Um, and you go, Oh, all of that went into these artifacts. And, and I, I it's, it strikes something I've been thinking about lately with the rise of AI, for instance, which is that we have devalued process a lot. Mm. And that ha is coming back to haunt us in a lot of ways, is that um, we've valued product at the cost of process. And they would not have uh, not have felt the same way. And that shows in some of how we think about creativity and creation and the space we have in talking about who Jesus is. Yeah. In my completely novice um, but imaginative mind, medieval mind, I was just thinking <laughs> about the period and how um, they seem to hold their religion and life and traditions and ideas so dear. Um, but they also are quick to point out some absurdity of life, yes. which I imagine it was full of it in 1400s. <laughs> um, and something about that combination works well with how they're um, some of the medieval ideals that, that come out in literature and art where they're, they're struggling with things that are, are real and dear, but they're not. Um, but the, I think the, 
the their well to me their fresh look at at life um, creates something really special. Yeah, I like that your connection of it with their absurdity because I think I mean take a look at the infamous manuscript marginalia, which that was one of my favorite things, by the way, about how Zondervan Reflective published this book is that they included marginalia in the chapter mm. headings, which was perfect because it carries that sense of absurdity that medieval people really do have. They were very serious, but they also had this sort of keen sense. And you, if you read Middle English's most famous poet, Chaucer, you're going to get that in full dose, mm. both the absurdity and the seriousness. And they didn't see a contradiction between them, right. which is foreign to us yeah. and is really lovely and refreshing. It is foreign. I think we um, are quick to see the absurdity and point out everything that's absurd in everyone. Um, and we maybe lack some of holding dear mm. mm. <laughs> and mm, just the, just an observation I had. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I think that's really true. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, in, in your conclusion, I want to read a paragraph that I thought was a really good summary okay. of, of what you did, how it affected you, and um, what you hope for others to get out of your book. Yes. This book has been a school of love. Some of these metaphors, images, and ideas of Jesus I already knew and loved. Some I had a hard time connecting with and chose to write about only because they were important to medieval people. For almost every chapter, I would start with just airing my often quite valid hang-ups and concerns and suspicions about the particular face of Jesus, sometimes beautifully rendered and sometimes rudely sketched by medieval brothers and sisters. Yet even the ones I was originally most intimidated by, the judge, or most skeptical of, the lover, ended up speaking profoundly to me, about Christ's character. I offer only a sample of the Jesus metaphors the medieval church used, like catching a piece of a reflection in a broken mirror. Each representation catches and renders an aspect of Christ, bigger, more beautiful, more glorious than any of them could separately communicate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that is the book. And that is what I hope for all of you reading it too, because that's what it was for me writing it, enjoying it. <laughs> I'm really thankful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank- I was um, so thankful reading it that I was thinking just of all the hard work you did Thanks. and I loved it. <laughs> thank you. And I can barely read, <laughs> but I read your book and it was so fun. I loved it. Um, but I have one more question. Oh, okay. This is a tough one for me because I don't know if I can even say it. You use a word I don't know. <laughs> what does Apoplectically. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I said gosh. it pretty good that time. You, I think. you said it really Apoplectically. good. Apoplectic. This, this is how we're ending the interview. Okay, with a vocabulary <laughs> vocabulary lesson. Yes. Please okay. Tell us. Um. Yes, it means like like caught in a fit. Like mm. you're like in a fit, and usually it's used to connote a, a certain kind of like rage that is like spastic and in a fit, mm. and you're just that's kind of an onomatopoeia. Now that you tell me what it means. Yeah. It does does sound like what it means. It is one of those words, even though it's, you wouldn't think so on first blush, but you're right. Now I know. I hope I don't forget that in like the next Now I I challenge you to use it in conversation this week. I will try. (laughs) If I can even say it. It's hard for my lips to make. I will try. I will try. Oh, that's a (laughs) common phrase we use. 
Um, well, thank you for thank interviewing you. me. This was really fun. This was really fun. I think I did really good. Oh, you killed it. Are Based you kidding on, me? <laughs> I told you I had too much pride. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. Next week, we'll be back to our regular style. Well, I should say next episode in two weeks. If you'd like to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out Instagram where you can find me at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD, or you can check out my Substack newsletter, which is chock full of fun and weird medieval things, as well as medieval adjacent things, medievalish with Grace Hammond. And that's on Substack. Thanks again for listening. I'm just so pleased to be able to share this book with you. And I can't wait for it to be out in the world. Thank you.